0: Join me there in Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> Romans chapter 13, verse number 14. Says this, it says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Father, would you help me as I preach this message? May I do so in the way that most pleases you. May Christ be lifted up in it, and may Christians be helped. If there's someone here today that's never trusted Christ, I pray they'd be saved before it's too late. And Lord, just take control of this. I believe you've already been in this mat, in this service this morning. And I trust that you'll continue to just have your will and way in our midst today. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to lift him up. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. This verse, number 14, is the capstone to a very active chapter of Scripture. Romans chapter 13 has a lot going on. The first six verses is talking about living in light. Of sovereign control. What are you going to do when you're under the control of others and uh, the consequences of your actions and so forth? Then verses 7 through 10 talk to us about living in light of sanctified conduct, how we're supposed to act as Christians. Verses 11 through 13 uh, remind us that we need to live in light of our Savior's coming. He's coming soon, and we need to be aware of that and live accordingly. But then in verse 14, we're living in light of sin's custom. Now, what do I mean by that? As sinners, as people that have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. When you got saved, you got delivered from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but not yet from the presence of sin. Well, that'll be a day, won't it? Yeah. Man, I'll get that new glorified body that never has a wrong thought, that never has a wrong motive, never has a wrong attitude. I'm looking forward to that glorified body more so lately than before. But as sinners, as people that are still in the presence of sin, it is customary, it is expected. Now, we don't celebrate it, but it's expected that we're going to have sinful desires. I've quoted this verse many times as a quick reminder to establish accountability and take care not to fall into sin, but there is so much more that is going on here. And so this morning, as we look at this verse, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof, we want to look at this subject, dealing with our lusts, dealing with our lusts. You say, well, Andy, that's a, that's a harsh title. I mean, as best I can tell, I don't, I don't have a problem with lust in my life. Can I remind you that sometimes we get painted into a corner by our definitions of words that may or may not be biblical? we tend to associate lust with that which is considered immoral or sexual. But that's not only what lust is talking about, and that's not the only thing it's talking about here in verse 14 either. If we were going to define lust, it's entertaining a desire for anything that God doesn't want us to have. Anytime we entertain a desire for something God doesn't want us to have, that's lust. That broadens the subject quite a bit, doesn't it? see. But if we're not careful, our life can inch closer and closer to being consumed with whatever that lust is. Would you notice in verse 14, But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts, plural. I don't think that he's talking about the many occurrences of the same lust. I think he's talking about different lusts. Frankly, I think we all struggle with more than one thing. If you've managed to get through your Christian life only struggling with one thing, good for you. Yeah. My life is full of struggles. By the way, let me give you some, let me give you some good, uh, some good um, word here. If there's a struggle, that means there's two sides. Yeah. I don't worry about the people that struggle near as much as I do the ones that don't. Yeah. You're right. Not me. I'm in great shape. No struggle here. Well, then sounds to me like only one side's working which may mean the other side's not even there. Mm. Preacher, is this going to be like the other Sunday morning? Eh, Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Landon tells me to bring it hard, so, you know, I mean, it's his fault. So let's ask some questions, shall we? Here's the first question. What is your lust? What is your lust? And, And when I say your, I'm not saying to the exclusion of me. I'm having to ask myself these questions, too. What is your lust? If lust is entertaining a desire for anything God doesn't want us to have, what is your lust? Your lust may be in the realm of immorality. Well, I'll have you know that I've been faithful to my spouse. Good for you. But it can also take the form of that steady gaze at a woman that's not your wife or a man that's not your husband. The inability or unwillingness to rope in your viewing habits on your computer, television, or phone. The compromising situations when no one is around. The flirtatious private message with a high school flame. All of these things are dangerous manifestations of an immoral lust. You know what your lust might be? It might be a grudge. The desire to maintain the angst and the disgust at a long-forgotten slight. The unwillingness to let go of a mistreatment that no one else even recognizes anymore. And eventually it becomes full-blown bitterness. Bitterness, the only poison that kills the user instead of the victim. You say, well, Andy, I I don't don't really know what you're saying. Come on, let's be honest. There's been times that we've, we've just had issues in our life that we knew it was time to let go of, and we just didn't want to. Hey, husbands and wives, you ever gotten into an argument and you knew it was stupid? I'm sorry, kids on here, you knew it was dumb. I don't know when that became a cuss word, but parents give me the skunk eye every time I use it. We don't say stupid. Well, I hear some of the things you do say. Oh, uh. You get into a fight and you know you know you're wrong i've never experienced that but you probably have <laughs> you know you're wrong you know it's dumb but you just keep fighting because you want to oh no i'm gonna find a way to win this thing i got no good position to, but i'm i'm gonna win this thing somehow and you just keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting now you know you never go to bed angry like the one fellow said stay up and fight But let's be honest, there's Christians out there that they have desi- their desire is to hold on to a grudge that God said to let go a long time ago. And when you desire something God doesn't want you to have, that's lust. Right. Perhaps your lust may be self-centeredness, the unyielding insistence that things be your way. Well, I just can't be happy unless it's my way things have to be done a certain way and I can I tell you something that's a desire God didn't want you to have it's a lust oh well, here's one that's really really sneaky maybe your lust may be the apathy or blissful ignorance of someone that prefers to just live and let live and give no thought to our continued actions or inactions i i just preacher i tell you i just really don't like confrontation and i i really don't like getting involved in things and so i just prefer just to not notice anything that's a desire god doesn't want you to have because god does want us to notice things that's why he says see then that you walk circumspectly you know that's why christians vote for godless candidates because i don't really want to i don't i don't like to get political can I tell you, abortion isn't a political issue, it's a moral issue. And I'm finding that in politics, more and more things are becoming moral issues, more so than political issues. If you want to disagree over whether or not a levy a tax should be levied or you know something should be built or there should be this, that's fine. We can disagree on that. But if you want to come in here and tell me it's okay to say that which is wrong is right and that which is right is wrong, then we've got a problem. And Christians need to stop embracing the lust of indifference and apathy. What's your lust? Oh boy, here's one that I've used. Here's a lust that's been in my life. Your lust may be the art of the excuse. The ability to rationalize and justify every time you fail to do that which God has clearly commanded. And it results in a lessened devotion in one's Bible and on one's knees or in one's church. The point is this, y'all. We all have a desire that we know displeases God, and yet we hang on to it, and that is the lust that we've made provision for. We, We read this verse, and we think, well, I'm faithful to my wife, and I'm not looking at stuff I shouldn't look at, and I'm not having a bunch of dirty thoughts, so got this verse covered. No, friend, if there's any desire in your life that you entertain that God doesn't want you to have, it's lust and we've made provision for it. Yeah. So the next question is pretty self-evident. If I've, if I've identified my lust, then how do I deal with it? All right, preacher, you got me. No, I don't want to get you. The Holy Spirit wants to get you. All right, I got this desire in my life that I'm harboring that shouldn't be there. How do I deal with it? There's but one way to deal with it. Ready? Starve it. Starve it to death. It's the only way to deal with it. What does it mean when it says to not make provision for the flesh? What does it mean to make provision? It means to plan ahead and see that something has whatever it needs to thrive, even when you're not engaged in it. Did you know there's some sins we have that are autopilot? We don't have to be engaged in it for it to be in our lives. Bitterness? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to be bitter today. It's just there. And you know why it's there? It's there because we've made provision for it. We didn't starve it. We made provision for it. Think about it. I am trying as a father, as a husband, I am trying to make provision for my family so that if something happens to me and I'm no longer actively engaged in their life because of death, that they still have what they need. I'm making provision for them. As I'm sitting like a moron on the bathroom floor last week, trying to figure out what in the world is going on with me, I at least had the presence of mind to look at Brother Davies and say, I think you're going to need to preach tonight. Why? I was trying to make provision for the church because what happens if I go to the ER and everybody gathers and they sing the songs and then come time to preach? What do we do now? Who wants to preach? You know, That's not making provision. It's not making provision. And we often make plans to feed our lusts so that they can grow even when we're not actively involved in them. But the only way to deal with such a state, the only way to deal with these desires that God doesn't want us to have, is to starve them. How do we do that? You cut off whatever feeds it. Hold your place here. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verse number 1. Colossians 3, verse number 1. If you then be risen with Christ, if you're saved, you're risen with Christ, right? Let try that again. If you're saved, you're risen with Christ, right? Yeah. If, the, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. So we see proactively we're to be setting our thoughts and our sights and our desires on those things that are godly and holy. But then there's another half to this. Verse 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now look at verse 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil. Inordinate affection. Hey, that sounds like a desire God doesn't want us to have. Inordinate affection, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify. What? What's the word "mortify" mean? Kill it. Mortify it. We have a procedure in our home that when a mouse is found, it is mortified. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't do the same thing with snakes. And yes, on two occasions, since we've lived there, we have found a snake in our home. Don't look at me all judgy. You have them in your house too, you just haven't seen them yet. Because yours are sneakier than mine are. I, as, a, as a general rule, unless it was poisonous and these were not, one was a little racer and the other one was a, a, a ringneck. Um, I scoop them up and take them outside and send them on their merry way, hoping they'll come back and eat mice before they get into my house. That's my plan. But a mouse gets no such quarter. Mice are mortified. Uh, We had an occasion in which a mouse was in Claire's closet. And so we cleaned everything out of the floor. And there's the mouse, cornered, terrified, looking at me for mercy. Mercy. And evidently realized he or she would get none. So that mouse took off. And then reflexively, instinctively, not having anything that I would normally use. Yeah, it's going where you think it's going. (laughs) Let's just say I exercised my fatherly um, ability to put my foot down. And I mortified that mouse and all his members. See. But they're cute. All right, you can have them then. Have them at your house. (laughs) Most of us would not have an issue with dealing with something that carries disease and pestilence and things like that. But something far more dangerous exists in our own lives and we refuse to put our foot down. We refuse to mortify our members. To kill that which threatens us. You see, A lot of Christians, whether we realize it or not, we try to be like Neville Chamberlain, if you know your history. Let's appease Hitler. Let's contain him. We'll be fine. And it took a Winston Churchill to come along and say, no, we got to kill him. And we got a lot of Neville Chamberlains in Christianity. Let's appease our lusts. Let's try to contain them. No, they got to die. You see, how do we do that? We put safeguards in place that will choke off the influences of these lusts. Obviously, Bible saturation is the first most important component of that, but accountability measures, accountability partners, making it harder to do wrong. God has spared me from any sin that would end my ministry, but that's because God's a good God, not because I'm a good saint. But one of the things that has helped is I have accountability measures in my life that make it harder for me to do those kind of things. Not you say, well, you some kind of weird, sick, psycho center? Yeah. And if we don't recognize that in all of us, we'll all get there. I can't make provision for it. One thing that really helps, one, one good measure that I use a lot and that you should use too is forward thinking. What do I mean by that? Seeing where lust leads. Keep in your mind where things can go. What did James tell us? Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. See, we, we've, hopefully we've identified our lust or lusts, as it were. And we've seen how to deal with that in the immediate, but then we've got to ask this question, how do I keep it from reemerging? How do I keep from going back? Go back to our verse, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's that's how you deal with it. But how do you keep it from reemerging? Read the first part. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, you could sum it up in one word, and the word is submit. First of all, you've got to submit to Christ daily. Submit to Christ daily. Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. What did everybody in this room put on this morning? Clothes. Had you not, you wouldn't have gotten in here. Okay, some of you put on more than others. Some of you put on more than clothes. I'm quickly coming to the point that I'll be putting on my teeth. And if my hair keeps thinning, I may be putting on something else. Or I may just accept it, I don't know. We'll see where my vanity is in that particular day. As a general rule, you put your clothes on every day, right? I guess the only Exception to that is if you're hospitalized and you can't leave the bed anyway, you just stay like you are every day until you're better to get up. But those of us that have any interaction with life at all, we put our clothes on every day. And yet Christians sometimes forget to put the Lord on every day. Sometimes we only put him on on Sundays. You know what I need? I need him Monday. And I need him Saturday. Saturday. And every day in between. We've got to submit to him daily. But you know what else? You you submit to Christ daily, you submit to Christ perpetually. You leave him on. I don't don't know of anybody that got to church today and said, whoo, man, I'm glad I'm here. Now I can just start taking it off. No, you leave your clothes on all day. Right? Right? Because at least for now, that's still illegal not to. Give America time. But why is it that we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get up in the morning, we'll do our devotions, we'll read the Bible, we'll pray, and I put the Lord Jesus on, and then by midday we forgot he even exists? No, we've got to keep him on all day. Submit to Christ daily, submit to Christ perpetually. And you know what else? Submit to him fully. Notice what it says. But put ye on Jesus Christ, the Lord, Jesus Christ. What's Paul reminding us? He's your Lord. That means he's your sovereign creator and your God. And he has every right to expect anything he wishes of you throughout the day. When you put Jesus on, you do so with the understanding he is your Lord and he is to be submitted to fully, fully. Hopefully we've identified what our lust is or lusts. We've seen how to deal with it. And then we've seen how to keep it from reemerging. So now we come to the so what. What? I was excited to tell Zach. I've not had a direct conversation with Kristen about this. Zach, I did. One of the vice presidents that has come on at the college was vice president when I was there. And he was my homiletics professor. And he's the one that taught us the so what. And I did not advise Zach to just always look at him and say, so what? That's, that's not the right context. That might get him in trouble. I told him, I said, you get to be under the influence of the same guy I was, and I'm happy for you for that. So what? I know it's not in vogue to evoke Civil War leaders, but you understand that some of them were good people, Amen. loved God and had the right idea about things. And though I'm not trying to start a holy war or anything like that, or a civil war, if it will. if it, if it, if it Come on, Eddie. Robert E. Lee regardless of what you might think of him. Historically, it's been proven that he worked very hard tirelessly to try and encourage reconciliation after the Civil War. He wanted to see the nation come back together, and he was very vocal about that. And after the Civil War, he was out riding um, in Kentucky. He had gone to see some people up there, and he came up to the home of some people that he knew. And so he stopped to talk with them a bit. And they go in the house and typical Southern home. They had a meal. They're sitting in the parlor. And the lady of the house especially is just, she's just bitter. She's just bitter. And so Mr. Lee, now Mr. Lee, no longer General. Mr. Lee inquires as to why she's feeling the way she's feeling. She says, General Lee, because Southerners still called him General Lee. I can't get over it. I can't let it go. Those Yankees came down. They came right through this farm. They took what they wanted, terrorized my children. My husband had to go out and risk his life fighting. All we wanted to do was live peacefully and quietly. And you see that tree out there, that dump of a tree, that tree that's been battered and burnt, and and just it's just an ugly tree. That was my family tree. It was planted here generations ago, and every time I look at it, I'm reminded of how sorry those people are, and I'm reminded of how bad it was, and I'm reminded of how horrible it was, and I just can't get over it. Now, what am I supposed to do, General Lee? He said, Madam, the very first thing you need to do is cut down that tree. I suspect here in this room, some watching online, you got some old trees in your life that every time you look at them, it incites whatever your lust is. Every time it crosses the horizon of your view, it kicks something in that takes you right back down that road you shouldn't go. Can I give you some good advice from an old Civil War general? Whatever that tree is, cut it down. If it's your phone, cut it down. If it's your computer or your television, cut it down. If it's that grudge that you've been holding, cut it down. If it's the excuses that you've been using to keep from serving God, cut them down. Because until you do, you'll never, ever deal with your lusts. She looked at that tree and she said, look how ugly it is. Look how horrible it looks. I hate the sight of it. And most Christians will tell you they look at their lust, and if they're honest, it's ugly, and it's horrible, and they hate that it's there, then cut it down. Maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe if you're watching online, you need to make an altar wherever you are and say, God, I need you to take an ax and cut this down in my life. I'm tired of dealing with this lust. I'm tired of making provision for it. I'm tired of letting it have safe haven in my life. I'm tired of seeing it for its ugly, marred self. I need to deal with my lusts.